Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Maya Van Rossum. Maya, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Josh. Thanks so much for having me back. Glad to have you here. When we finished our last conversation, I said that I wanted to follow up. One of the things I wanted to check about was your enthusiasm, because you're doing something that I think a lot of people would consider difficult and hard and grueling, and who knows when you'll see fruition. But what you said has really stuck with me. And I, I'm going to put something out here that I wonder if this resonates with you because it's changed my thoughts a lot. That you, The difference between legislation and an amendment and the – here's what hit me. We don't have a right to a clean environment and it feels like we do. And we, we feel like we do – in spirit, but we don't anywhere uh, except for three states. We don't in the United States. We don't actually have that. And so, as I kept thinking about what does that mean, what hit me was: here's what I think about. Imagine I woke up one morning, and it turned out that for some sort of weird mistake, the Bill of Rights that was signed in the 18th century was somehow the paperwork wasn't filed and it wasn't good anymore. And somehow we did not have the Bill of Rights anymore. We didn't have right to free speech, church and state all over the place. And if we, if suddenly I realized I didn't have a right to free speech, if we didn't have a free press, it would be the most important thing. It would be incredibly important because suddenly I would realize, oh my God, all these interests are going to want to take over the media and make it like a state run thing. They're going to want to take away my rights to free speech. They're going to take away all these rights that I think that I have now. And if I lived in a world without a Bill of Rights, suddenly that would become one of the most important things in my life. And now, in the 18th century, they could not have foreseen pollution on the scale that we have today, if at all. And so it's not in there. And now I realize, I'm not sure if that's how you think about it, but if I didn't have a right to free speech... I would be like, oh my God, we have, that's, I've got to get that because they're going to want to take that away. And there's plenty of reasons people can come up with to take away my rights to free speech. It would sound really plausible to uh, someone wanting to take it away in order to extend their monopoly or something like that. Is that anything like, because I don't think, I just didn't realize I don't have a right to a clean environment. And, and as you said, sorry if I'm, if I'm going on too long, but like what you've, our conversation has really hit me that the legislation that we have is how to allow polluting, not how to stop it. I mean, that's a really different world than I'd lived in before our conversation. Well, um, so one, I'm really, really glad that it resonated with you and that everything I said, you know, that you took in so deeply and, um, and that it had such an impact. So thank you for sharing that. And I will tell you, honestly, it really is that that level of um, shock, awe, and awareness that I find when I speak with so many communities. I I literally, when I stand in front of the room and and give a talk, you know, I I see people go through this evolution. First, this sort of a little bit of confusion when I explain how the laws work and how they are focused on legalizing pollution, degradation, and harm of the environment, not not preventing it. Um, so I see people being confused, right? And then I see people when I talk about the 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 power and the opportunity uh, for getting a constitutional right to a clean, safe, and healthy environment, how they get really excited 
and happy, right? And there you can see it on their faces. And then um, almost in the next breath, then I see when I explain what a Green Amendment is and we talk about the growing movement, somehow I think I see on people's faces sort of the awesomeness of the work to yes. accomplish it, right? And they feel yeah. a little bit overwhelmed, like, oh my gosh, how can we get this constitutional right? But then, you know, I go on with the conversation and talk about how accessible environmental or constitutional amendments are at the state level, how they happen with regularity, how it really is about people getting organized and active and engaged, and that this is very doable and that it actually has happened in three states. And that at this point, we have 15 other states pursuing this pathway. And all of a sudden, right now, the the, the excitement comes into their faces because they've come through this pathway of learning um, and they end at this place of opportunity and they can see themselves being part of the instrument that creates and secures the opportunity to get this constitutional right to pure water, clean air, a safe climate and healthy environment. So it's all it's all quite fun and quite interesting. But as you said, you know, it is it is a lot of hard work. And it's hard work that we all are going to accomplish together. Um, and so that's, to me, also very gratifying and very exciting, because it really is about people coming together in common cause to make a difference. But I did want to express one other thing that I thought about when you were talking, um, you know, which is one of the the things that I think is so sad is, first off, people, many people do actually think they have a right to clean water and clean air. You know, maybe they haven't thought about they haven't thought about ecosystems. Maybe they haven't thought about the climate, but they certainly do think about clean water and clean air. And the thing that one of the things, amongst many things, that's so sad to me is that whether they realize it or not, and I suspect most people don't realize it, in their belief that they already have a right to clean water and clean air, they actually in their minds define the right to clean water and clean air as water and air that is so contaminated that it can cause cancer and ADHD and Alzheimer's and heart attacks, right? And, and diseases of all kinds. Because if you live in our modern day world where so many people suffer from pollution and degradation causing these harms, and you have that thread in your mind. And at the same time, you have the thread in your mind that you actually have a right to clean water and clean air. Then actually, when you put those two things together, it means that you believe you have a right to clean water and clean air. And you define that as water and air so contaminated that it devastates your healthy life. Right. And so that's really um, scary and sad in a different no. kind of way. I want to, sorry to interrupt. I normally I'd cut this out, but could you hear, you could probably hear the noise that was outside. I could. Is, I, and I didn't want to interrupt, but is sound pollution part of a clean, a, this is something that like, I, the more I read about sound pollution, the more I find it really messes us up. And it's, it's all sorts of medical stuff. Is sound pollution part of it? Well, so as we talked about last time, right, I have these critical criteria 
these essential criteria that must be fulfilled in order to have what I call a green amendment, which results in creating this enforceable right of the people that the people can enforce to a clean, safe and healthy environment. So it's things like it has to be in the Bill of Rights. The language has to be what we call self-executing. The plain language of the Constitution is enforceable, even if you don't have a law that's defining it. You know, it has to apply to all levels of government and be clear uh, what we're talking about, things like clean water, clean air, a safe climate and healthy environments. And of course, it has to protect the rights of all people, regardless of race, ethnicity and socioeconomics. And I have suggested model language, you know, how this language, what are the words and the terms and the provisions that a state could use um, to fulfill these criteria? Um, and when there is a community that wants to pursue a green amendment in their state, we come together and we talk about the criteria. We talk about the, the options, the language choices, right? You could call it model language or you could call it language options and choices. I literally have like an a la carte menu of how to create a green amendment sort of as a starting place for people. But we work together to create it so that the amendment fulfills the goals and the priorities and the culture of the particular state where we're working. And so all of that is to say that in amongst the language options that I, um, you know, put forth and talk with people, there is the option to include noise pollution. So I actually have it as an option. No state has chosen it as of this time, as a explicit term to put in their Green Amendment proposal. But that is amongst the options that a state could consider, because as you said, there is a lot of evidence about the very serious health harms and ecosystem harms of noise pollution. So one state at some point might, might choose to include that, that kind of language. Okay, I hope so. Uh, I hope I hope all the states do. Well, and you know the other thing that would have you know one would have to do is with the way green amendments are written, as we talked about, the language is by design broad, right? Just like the right to free speech and freedom of religion, that is broad language, so that it can it can cover the whole array of impacts to those fundamental rights whether or not they were conceived of at the time the amendment was written or not, right? And that that language can sort of evolve with society over time to cover all the critical issues that need to be covered. And so the language of a Green Amendment similarly is broad. And we do talk about things like healthy ecosystems and healthy environments. So just because noise pollution is not explicitly mentioned in the Green Amendment language that a state might might put forth, that does not necessarily mean that noise pollution can't be covered. It, you know, with the right set of circumstances and the right situation, it would simply be a matter of bringing forth the science and the facts and making the case that in this context, the noise pollution that's happening is rising to the level of infringing on you know, the, the the healthy ecosystems or native wildlife or other terminology that's included in Green Amendment language. But one would have to one would have to make the case that it applied if the language isn't explicitly in there. I appreciate you following this uh, 
not really digression, but um, uh, maybe digression from what you're saying before, because of the, the timeliness of that sound. And there's well, a bit more in the background. I just want to tell you, though, if you, you know, in my book, The Green Amendment, The People's Fight for a Clean, Safe and Healthy Environment, I actually do talk about noise pollution in, in one part. And I actually talk about my own, you know, experience where I live, where when when my husband and I chose the house that we live in, we every house we went to, I went and sat in the yard by myself to see what I could hear because it was very important to me. And, and it was very important to me as part of sort of my life story where I, I, in the end, I found myself living next to a multi-lane highway because the government chose to cut down this beautiful forest that I grew up next to. And so I found myself particularly sensitive to the, to traffic sounds, um, particularly from this one roadway. Anyway, so Dave and I, you know, really did try to find a a home where when I'm working in the garden and I'm thinking about nature and I'm thinking about my mother or I'm spending time with my own family or just spending time with nature, that I'm enjoying the sounds of nature, not the sounds of this, of this highway. Then, so we bought our house and then, and that was all, and I sleep every night with my windows open, no matter what the season, because I like real air and the sounds of nature. At some point, years after we bought the house, all of a sudden, every single night, I could hear this, sorry, I could hear this damn highway. Mm -hmm. And it would literally just keep me up all night. And I'd have to find ways to make, you know, alternative noise, whether it was turning on a fan or playing music or something. So I didn't hear the noise because it grated on me so deeply. And I kept trying to figure out what had changed, what was happening, that suddenly I was experiencing this full body stress from this noise. And what I found at one point um, when I was traveling around, you know, my community, that there was a stand of woods that had been cut down to squeeze in three more houses, literally right next to this highway. And when you look at the the positioning of where this woodland was in proximity to sort of the direction of my house, it's my belief that this, that the cutting down of these trees are what allowed the noise to funnel through, no longer having a natural buffer funnel through right into my bedroom window every night and into my garden every day. So it's rather sad. I'm listening to this and also thinking in the mindset of if suddenly the First Amendment went away, then there'd be this little, you'd, we'd be talking and then at some point you'd realize, oh, wait, I'm not allowed to talk in this one area. Like they've, they've curtailed my right to free speech in some small area. And then a little while later, it'd be another. And I feel like we live in a world in which because we don't have green amendments, these little things happen here and there that I think we would say if other if other amendments of the Bill of Rights disappeared, I, I, I hope you don't mind my jumping back and forth between national and state level. But if those things disappeared, I think we would say, oh, my God, we would fight like hell to protect those things. But I think actually a lot of people would say, look, I got to take care of my kids and my mortgage and things like that. And I, someone, I have faith that someone else will take care of this. But it's really worth it because, well, for, for all the reasons that we value our Bill of Rights and, and these other protections, 
constitutionally protected things that, I mean, we could easily have these things chip away, chip away, chip away if it was like a right to, I don't know. I mean, if, if. Oh, yes. I mean, any, I mean, look, I, I think that we, and we have, we have some really good examples staring us in the face. First off, on the environmental front, as you said, you know, as we've already acknowledged and talked about, we don't have an environmental right at the state level or at the federal level, unless you're in one of the three Green Amendment states, Pennsylvania, Montana, and New York, as you wonderfully acknowledged. Um, but, and we do have this flawed system of environmental laws, but that being said, this flawed system of environmental laws has provided a significant and meaning love, meaningful level of protection. Not enough protection. It, you know, it, it does um, actually find a way to perpetuate pollution, degradation, and harm, albeit at a lower level, right? And so it has, you know, provided a critical level of environmental protection in many circumstances and places. Um, and yet what we have witnessed, um, I think, sort of right in front of everybody's face is in the last year, the United States Supreme Court undermining those laws in critical ways that is stripping from the Federal Environmental Protection Agency their ability to address air pollution, to address the climate crisis, and now as as a result of the Sackett decision that came out this year to protect critical wetlands that are so important for cleansing the water we drink, cleansing the water that feeds the streams that we enjoy, that we have fish in, that are so critical for ecosystems, so creating habitats, wetlands that create habitats critical for um, plant life and wildlife that are essential to our very lives in a variety of ways, whether it's because they're pollinators or they just, you know, psychologically nourish our souls with their, with their beauty. And yet these protections, the ability of the EPA to provide these critical protections has been chipped away by the current U.S. Supreme Court, who's simply decided they were going to interpret these existing laws that made them even weaker than they already are. So we see that if we had had a constitutional Green Amendment at the federal level, then we actually would have been able to turn to the Constitution um, to, to to prevent some of that critical undermining of these um, environmental protection laws that we do have. So we have that sort of on one hand. And on the other hand, too, we have the, 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 the situation with the right of people to get an abortion, right? The right to their own bodily autonomy and to make their own medical decisions. And for 50 years, people believed that women and others who have a womb had that right right? That right to self-determination over their own health and their own bodies. And yet this current Supreme Court under the Dobbs decision last year decided that it was going to reinterpret the constitutional language to strip away that fundamental right. And they were able to do that because there was no clear language in the Constitution that recognized and protected the right to bodily autonomy, right? For one to to self-determine their own health care. And so as a result, because the right to an abortion was read into language within the Constitution, but wasn't explicitly there, it was very easy for the U.S. Supreme Court, who had a political agenda, very clearly a political agenda on their own minds to just strip away 
that protection. Um, you know, so we have had modern day experiences on the environmental front and on the, you know, reproductive rights front, the bodily autonomy front, where actually we have had shipping away and in the case of reproductive rights, a stripping away of constitutional protection. I mean, on the environmental front, it was a chipping away of legislative protection because there is no Green Amendment. But with reproductive rights, it, it was really a removal of that constitutional protection of that right to bodily autonomy, which is the modern day version of what you're talking about. The sudden removal, whole cloth writ large of the right to free speech or freedom of religion or any of those other fundamental rights we hold dear. So we know what, we all know what it feels like. Um, and we do people, we do see people rising up in defense of, um, you know, that fundamental right to reproductive, you know, to bodily autonomy when it was in fact ultimately removed. People who may not normally be involved in that kind of issue suddenly finding themselves needing to be involved because it's just so fundamentally wrong to strip away such an important personal fundamental entitlement that we the people enjoyed for 50 years. Now, by contrast, there have been plenty of times also where, I don't know, some newspaper would print something and the government tries to stop them and they go, no, we have a right. You can't stop us from doing this. And the government is, well, you're right. It's in the constitution. We can't stop. We can't, what, what you did was wrong and you can't chip away in certain areas. Uh, there are plenty of cases where someone says something and I don't know, maybe it's a student and the school administrator st tries to stop them. And no, that's protected. You can't stop them from saying certain things, almost anything. And we don't have that in this area. So I also want to put in where we do have these protections. It's wonderful. And we tremendously value these things. Now, also, you pick two things that I think most people would see politically left. But on the political right, if, if this is the right way of, of, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but I mean, you have the right to bear arms and imagine that amendment wasn't there. Well, and the thing, you know, we can, we can look at that. That is sort of the other confirmation of the, the point I make about the power of constitutional recognition and protection. Whatever one thinks about the current interpretation by the U.S. Supreme Court of the right to bear arms, there is explicit language in the Constitution about the right to bear arms. And that is why and how the U.S. Supreme Court was actually able to roll back a law that had been around in the state of New York for a 100 years that prohibited, I think it was the right to, to carry concealed weapons in certain places and spaces. Um, and the U.S. Supreme Court relied on the explicit constitutional language about the right to bear arms to strip away those critical protections that actually put in jeopardy the right of all other people to life, right? And, and to their own safety and sanctity. So that is part of what happens when you have explicit constitutional language. There is a balancing amongst rights that has to take place. But when the language is explicit, it is very difficult for the courts or government officials 
to ignore that right of the people and their obligations to protect those fundamental rights. And so yeah. we, we do have that example on, you know, as you said, on the on the, the side of the right to bear arms. But I do want to just say one other thing. When it comes to the environment, one of the beautiful things about the Green Amendment movement is, and what we see with how the movement is evolving on the ground, is this is not a left versus right. Exactly, issue. yeah. It, it This really is about we the people. And so we do have a lot of Republican leaders in the Green Amendment movement actually co-sponsoring Green Amendment language and speaking very eloquently about it. In fact, you know, one of the most beautiful quotes that I take from testimony is from Senator Bennett in the state of Maine, who is a leading sponsor of the Green Amendment, Senator Rick Bennett. He's a leading sponsor of the proposed Green Amendment in the state of Maine. And he speaks so beautifully and so eloquently about the importance of environmental rights and natural resources protection for all the people of Maine. Yeah, I really don't see it as a political issue, as a left-right issue. A political, it, it's to me, because when I hear, I think of like Milton Friedman very clearly says there's a role for government to set what the rules are so that the market can know what to do. And if you don't set the rules, then some will go in this area that doesn't help people. Or even, even Ronald Reagan is like, a, we need to allow the market we need to enable the market. Like to me, if you don't have rules, then people will do all sorts of things, whatever they can. But if you have rules, that doesn't stop innovation. That enables innovation. It enables, it unleashes genius for like people ask me, Josh, what do you see for world without pollution? And I'm like, a lot of innovation in ways that I can't imagine because we'll be innovating safely, not harmfully. And it's, by no means to me a left-right issue any more than the First Amendment is. It, it just seems like if we – this is what conservatives, liberals, and libertarians – it seems consistent with all their values. To ha I mean – 100 percent. And, and you, just, you just described it so beautifully. And I'll just say two things. In the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, in that first most powerful position, um, decision where – where I am my role as a Delaware Riverkeeper and my Delaware Riverkeeper Network organization, you know, brought that landmark case that really resulted in Pennsylvania's Green Amendment getting its current legal strength, legal life and legal interpretation. The very conservative chief justice of the Supreme Court in the state who wrote the plurality opinion um, in that case, he made very, very clear that this is not about stopping economic development. Um, or as you say, innovation in the state. It's simply about, about ensuring that economic development and business growth happens in a way that protects the environment. At the same time, it is striving to accomplish whatever other goals it's striving to accomplish, including profit goals, right? But that, the, that environmental protection has to be a priority as a result of the Pennsylvania Green Amendment. But this is also, you know, we have 
real life examples of exactly what you're talking about, Josh. In fact, the Clean Water Act, when it was passed and did result in significant cleanup of the horrifying state of the waterways across our nation, when that law was first passed, it was known as um, it was crafted to be what we call a technology forcing law. And so what the Clean Water Act did is it I, it identified what would be the allowable level of pollution for certain waterways um, or, and business operations or business operations in a state or in our nation. And then it set that um, pollution protection goal, or you could say pollution allowable pollution level goal, whatever it is, however it is you want to frame it. But it, it was a goal that would result in a reduction of pollution, but it would set that pollution level that was legally allowable. And then all the industries that were contributing that kind of pollution via a permit would have to make sure that they were discharging their pollution at levels that would meet that state stated set goal. When that, when that pollution limit, that pollution level was set, the states and or the federal government, depending, you know, what, what specific contaminant and waterway we were talking about, they didn't have, they didn't go and say, Oh, this is how much pollution all the industries in this arena can achieve or pollution reduction. These, these, um, you know, operations can achieve and set the limit based on what was achievable. No, they set the limit based on what they believed was appropriate for a waterway. And then they went back to all of the industries and said, okay, now figure out how you're going to meet this pollution goal. And in some instances, the technologies existed and the businesses just had to put them into their operations and they were able to achieve that pollution limit, that pollution level. But in other instances, the technology did not exist. And the businesses, the industry had to create the technology in order to meet the new legal standard. And guess what happened? They did it. They created, just as you said, all kinds of new innovations and technologies and in order to reduce their pollution outputs. And in so doing, not only did they improve the quality of the waterways and improve the health of the people and the communities around those waterways, but they created lots of jobs and they created a whole new opportunity for economic development, economic growth, profit margins, and again, jobs for new people who needed jobs. And so when we do operate in a world where we are striving to prevent pollution, degradation, and harm, we don't stymie every other aspect of our lives, including business growth and job growth. We actually spur it on, just like you said, Josh, we spur it on and we create a better world all the way around for all of us. Yeah, I, I try to imagine if we didn't have to protect the right to free assembly and the the way we figured it out was, well, what what's the least amount of free assembly? How, how much can we get away with here? Oh, God, it would be such a terrible world. Mm-hmm. And we, I mean, we slept walked into this one. I mean, it kind of snuck up on us because we didn't know what about pollution but uh, or degradation, but... We would just simply, it would be intolerable, you know. Well, the interesting, 
thing, I do just want to say the interesting thing about that, right? It's why we, why we, while we all sort of think back and think, well, the reason why, you know, the, the crafters of the constitution and, um, people along and politicians along the way didn't include and or add environmental rights to our constitutional entitlements was because they couldn't have anticipated it. They couldn't have conceived of it. But actually, when we read back in the history books, you know, one can read about people like Benjamin Franklin witnessing extreme levels of pollution in Philadelphia, in his community, and expressing tremendous um, consternation about that situation. So they actually did have experience with pollution and the devastating consequences that it can inflict. But I think they there were just too many, well, I don't want to I don't want to conceive of why they didn't include it. It was just a fundamental oversight and they should have because they could have, just like with these other fundamental entitlements, they could have imagined what was to come. It's not like you know, pollution and degradation didn't exist in England before, you know, people came to the United States of America or other European countries. We all see it, right? I mean, you know, you can just watch the television shows about, you know, old timey places in European countries and see how they not only experienced pollution, but how it really significantly impacted people's healthy lives. And so there, there was, reason for well, I guess what people call the founding fathers to to have done a better job by all of us when it came to the environment and the constitution but the fact of the matter is they didn't and so now is our time and our opportunity to create and make history positive history for all of us to come together and be a part of history and transform our state and federal constitutions so they do include this critical entitlement of the people to pure water, clean air, safe climate, and healthy environments. Well, I would say also, if we go back to John Locke and the language that ends up in the Declaration of Independence and to some extent in the Constitution, that a role of the government is to protect life, liberty, and property. And if pollution does anything, it destroys life, it destroys liberty, and it destroys property. Yep. And and the pursuit of happiness as well. And to me, it's wrapped up in there. I don't think many people look at it that way. But if if I pollute and that gets into the environment, look, if, I, if, if all the pollution I ever produce stays in my apartment and somehow even after I die, it just stays with me forever, I suppose, I don't know, that, but that's not possible. I mean, if I pollute, it gets everywhere. Right. It doesn't happen that way. I mean, we can pretend, but it doesn't happen that way. It invades other people's properties. And in so doing, it invades their bodies. It reduces property value. So if what people care about is cash economics, right? If you're a property owner and you live next to an industrial operation that's spewing pollution, right? It is going to, and it does reduce your property values. It reduces the bottom line of what you can get how quickly you can sell your property and the amount of money you can get get for it. And when you reduce property values, you also reduce the taxable income that your local community gets, which impacts the local town's budget. And that has implications for the whole community um, 
in because there's less money that the community has, but also when that pollution, you know, and degradation comes into and invades your property, it invades your body. And that can have significant health consequences and that can impact the quality of your life, but that can also impact your bottom line because guess what? It costs money to go to the doctor. Um, you know, so then, you know, and, and time at the doctor and days, you know, where you are ill, well, that's missed time at work. So that means lost income for you in terms of making money for your job, but it also means an increased expense for your employer who has to either suffer the consequences of being one worker down or perhaps has to hire a temp to replace you for the day. And that can be costly, right? So all the way around um, pollution and degradation harms. And it doesn't even have to invade your property to have these kinds of economic consequences. I mean, what we see, and there's so much evidence, is Homes that are in proximity to known toxic sites, their property values are reduced. Now, very often, that toxic contamination is migrating off-site and does have serious implications for those who live around. In fact, if people read the story of the Bishop Tube site in my book, they will read about a very toxic site that has had devastating consequences for people's lives and for the community. But even if you didn't have that pollution migration, the awareness that a property is in proximity to a toxic site reduces the value of that property, which has implications for the property owner. They can't sell the property as quickly and they can't sell it for as much. So you're, you are right. No matter how you look at it, pollution and degradation harms all of us. And the only people that benefit from the pollution and degradation are the industries and the operators and the developers who are the ones causing the harm because they are the ones who are, get, who are getting off the hook from having to put in place the operations, the decisions, the technologies that will prevent that harm, right? They're foisting all of that burden of all of that cost to deal with the pollution on everybody else. And they are simply reaping in the profits and the cost savings of, of being able to create and not having to deal with that pollution. So they get more profits and the people in the environment and nature get more pain. And that's the reality of it. You're connecting the degradation of life, liberty, and property to the economy and and how much money you can make and things like that. That's That's going to influence a lot of people. And I think that's important. To me, it's also just the, even if it, but I think that's open to – some people will say, okay, well, some people do suffer, but overall the economy benefits more. I mean, look at the Manhattan skyline and look at what we've built and all these things and, and uh, the vaccines and so forth. And, well, if all that comes from – there's still just the basic right to life, liberty, and property. And if the way that that's achieved is by destroying individual life, liberty, and property, and not just one individual, but all individuals – then, I mean, there are places where we've decided it's not worth it. Like child labor, that's always being eked away at, but we just simply don't allow child labor. We don't allow, you can't like put a gun to someone's head and say, you have to work, or I'm going to kill you. That's not allowed. Even if it improved the economy, we don't allow it. 
And it feels to me like, yes, what you said. And even if it, even if the economy somehow did well, even if somehow the economy did better than the individual losses, I'm not saying it the right way, but I hope you, you get what I'm saying. It's still not something that... Yeah. But again, Josh, we don't even have to pretend that that might be the case because history tells us it's not. History proves that point fundamentally flawed and wrong. When we look over history where we had so much so much pollution, degradation, and harm that it was not just destroying nature and property values, right? But it was having those increasing health harms, which were having implications for workers and for the businesses that needed those workers. You know, pollution doesn't just harm people, it harms other businesses. There are manufacturers that need clean water in order to conduct their operations. And if the water is contaminated, they have to suck that water in. They have to then pay to clean it up in order to be able to produce their product or whatever it is. You know, so what we see when you look at the full ramifications, economic, just again, if all people care about is dollars and not other people or not nature, just look at the dollars. History proves that a quality environment and a healthy economy go hand in hand. And when you allow pollution, degradation, and harm, you allow, you cause, create, and perpetuate economic harm. And that is the proof of history. Um, And frankly, it is one of the reasons why environmental protections, to the extent we have them, have been put in place. Yes, one would hope that people cared about other people and nature, but a lot of it was economically driven. Um, so again, we don't even have to do sort of the imagination exercise. We know from history that it's simply not true. But I would agree with you, and I will say this, and I say this many a time. I am sorry, in my opinion, I don't even, I'm not even sorry, I'm not apologetic about it. I don't care if fracking creates more profits for a business, but results in children getting cancer and dying, it is not worth the cost. It is not fair. It is not right. And it should not be allowed. That that industry, that fracking must stop simply for that for that purpose. And if some business, you know, fracker comes along and says, well, you know, it's a cost of doing business. It's better for all of society. Then I say to them, well, what if it was your kid? What if it was your kid that was getting cancer and being intentionally sacrificed from an industry that we knew that we knew was causing cancer in kids and killing them? Would then would it be okay? And I suggest to you that their answer would be a 100% flat out no. So if it's not okay to sacrifice their child, why is it okay to sacrifice somebody else's? It's not. It's not okay to sacrifice their child or somebody else's or anybody's child. We have to find a way to operate that does not kill our children and kill nature. And we can, when we look at energy, right? It doesn't, the question is not, do we frack or don't we frack? Do we use fossil fuels or don't we use fossil fuels? No, the question is, how do we create energy in a way that serves our energy needs and protects our communities and our environment and our climate at the same time? We can do it. It's called clean renewable energy like wind, And solar, by the way, it does not include hydrogen hubs or carbon capture and sequestration. That is not clean renewable energy. That's just more fracking in another form. 
But, you know, we it's all about how we frame the question. And yes, we do need to look at things on a community scale. And when we do, a healthy environment is much better for everybody and for every aspect of our communities. But we do also have to look at the individual scale. We do also have to look at the families and the children and the communities of color and the indigenous communities and the low-income communities who are suffering because of pollution, degradation, and harm. And their suffering makes that pollution, degradation, and harm not worth it. I think that the I, yeah we didn't we're not disagreeing here. I, I'm, I oh think no no I people... know I'm agreeing with you. I'm agreeing with you. I'm just saying we don't have to engage in the imagination exercise about what if because we know that what if is just not true. Yeah, I mean, it's not an imagination exercise. It's there are going to be different people who are persuaded by different things. I think there are going to be a lot of people who say, yeah, yeah, I've heard the think of the children thing already, but they've they've gotten their internal resistance to it, and I, I think they're, but I think that they might be open to something about fundamental rights of, of or, or limits on government to protect life, liberty, and property. I mean, I'm thinking of like the Ayn Rand crowd and, um, you know, they're voters. They're, they're, they're part of the people. And if they're not on board, I think it's, it, it's in their interest. And I think it, a certain language will, will disengage them, but other language will engage them. And I don't know. I, I'm thinking about rhetoric here. Um, well, I mean, but that is, you know, that is one of the reasons why when you hear me talk about the Green Amendment, when you read it in the book, The Green Amendment, when you see me do anything I do around the Green Amendment movement, you will hear me and see me just like in this conversation, um, intentionally talking about all of the benefits that come from constitutional Green Amendment protection of our environmental rights, because the fact of the matter is, Whatever is your personal priority, political, economic, human health, environment, rights of nature, whatever it is, it will be well served by having Green Amendment environmental rights protections. Yes, that's something I completely agree on. Whatever your fundamental beliefs are, this is consistent with them. It's so clear. I think people don't get that. But whether you're politically left, right, libertarian or whatever, if you're any religion, any – I've not come across a different way of looking at things that is not supported by sustainability, that's supported by, um, as you would put a Green Amendment. It's consistent with every ethos I've ever come across. And it just has to be put in, in those languages. That's not the case with a lot of things. I mean, people disagree on a lot of things, but this is something that is just really – like, I, here's another way of, uh, I've been thinking about it also. It's like, if suddenly the Bill of Rights disappeared, like what, and we couldn't get all 10 back in, like what is the most important one? And I can't help but think like, probably, even though the Green Amendment, a federal Green Amendment doesn't exist, I would probably want that one of the first ones, maybe the first one, because I want to have air in my lungs before I can speak. Like, it's really, I, I can't think of something that's more important than my own health and the health of everyone. It's so high in value. It's and somehow we're we're missing it. It's crazy. Can I go back to something? Actually, what, one of the things I interrupted you when that noise interrupted us was that you were talking about the transition that you see people go through as you talk about this stuff. And you've been doing this long enough that I presume that you've gotten very skilled at it. And I took 
I mean, it's, it's, it's been a few months since that conversation. And it's, it's like taken me a while, but you've probably been able to walk people through it a lot faster than a few months. What's that like to see that happen? I mean, can you, does it really happen in the course of a few minutes? And is it, is that deeply satisfying for you? Is it, is that something that really keeps you going? So it, it, it happens over the course of the talk, which usually takes about half an hour, maximum an hour, right? I mean, I have talks long and short, but it's sort of the, it takes the time of the space of the conversation because even when people get at, you know, um, even after the more formal presentation part I do, those who have not been brought around inevitably have questions and they start to ask the questions. And then in the Q&A dialogue, um, you know, that can be the transformational moment for people. And there are some people that we're never going to convince. Um, we're never going to convince, sorry, we're never going to convince the Koch brothers. They are my <laughs> opposition. We're never going to convince, you know, the fracking executives. Um, you know, they are playing mind games with themselves, I guess. And clearly their their profits are more important than anything or anyone else. But I don't worry about those people, right? Because I'm not going to waste my time trying to convince them. They're too selfish. Um, I worry about the real people. So it is, it is. It is. It's wonderful to see the transformation in the in the beginning, the the earlier talks. Right. I would start to feel myself getting anxious when I, I saw, again, people getting over the excitement and then starting to come to the to the doubt or the concern parts right before I brought them around, you know, would bring them around again by the end of the talk. And at first I was getting this anxiousness. I thought, oh, my gosh. But yes, after just a few times, right, I was able to see how that transformation happened. And it was pretty consistent across communities. And I think it's always it's always fun. It's always interesting. And it is satisfying on a certain level. But the truth is, it's not really satisfying because I'm not trying to change people's minds so they can go back to their everyday lives. I'm trying to change people's minds so they want to get involved and they want to make a difference. And they don't just want to, they do get involved. They do make a difference. They do support the Green Amendment movement with their actions, their activities, their donations, their participation, you know, whatever is the right role for them that they become actively engaged. That is when I get you know, you know, super excited and happy. That's when I feel satisfied. Every single time I get a communication saying, how do I make this happen in my community? And the person who did that outreach actually follows through. Yeah, people constantly look at me and they see me doing stuff that they think, oh, that's nice or that's good, but I don't have time for it or whatever. And they think that I'm pushing against resistance because they They'll say, oh, I'm balancing this, I'm balancing that. And I'm like, well, yeah, everyone balances. Every, everyone's always balancing conflicting interests. But I'm not pushing against resistance. I'm enthusiastic because I know where, where I'm going and what I'm doing. And that enthusiasm. So in, in the area of the Green Amendments was something that I think I told you when I first had when, – when the idea first came to me, before I'd heard of you, before I'd heard of Gaylord Nelson proposing an amendment in 1970 – I thought, well, this is crazy. Don't even think about it. And the more that I think about it, the more I'm like, this is, this is like, whatever we do until we have this, we haven't finished it. I'm not saying that when we have this, we finished it either, but this is necessary and such an improvement to our world as much as 
the Bill of Rights was an improvement to the Constitution without the Bill of Rights. And it's, it's wonderful to work on. It's, um, it's not just a pie-in-the-sky thing. It's not just some abstract idea. It's, it's just such a great goal. And once achieved, will be such a great tool. And it's just this wonderful, wonderful thing. I, I don't know. Is that how people talk about it? I, um, some people like you, right? Like people, yeah. come, people come at it from different ways. And, you know, and that, that is one of the beautiful things, again, about the Green Amendment movement is that it really resonates differently with different people and different organizations. But it has the ability to resonate with everybody who cares, because once passed, having this kind of broad constitutional entitlement to a clean, safe and healthy environment serves all environmental movements, all environmental justice movements, all climate justice movements, all movements focused on providing generational protection. It can support the water organization, the air organization, the organization working on toxic issues, the organizations working on, you know, urban air pollution or climate justice. So that is one of the things that that is so wonderful is that it, it does have it has broad appeal because it has such broad, powerful impact for so many movements and really, as you said, for all communities. And if somebody's, you know, priority is is preservation of people, the Green Amendment helps them. If their priority is preservation of nature, the Green Amendment helps them. It helps us all just yes. in different ways. I'll throw in people with lungs and beating hearts and who were once <laughs> fed through a placenta. Like these are these types of people as well. And people who believe in, in protecting life, liberty, and property from being destroyed by others without their consent. And yeah, it's – oh, yeah, you reminded me of something I meant to say at the very beginning. Um, you talked about donations and you probably didn't get the email yet, but just before this call, I donated. And I have a lot of people from a lot of causes on this. And although I have to give credit to my post yesterday was Peter Singer, who whose book I read after talking with him, but before my next conversation with him, uh, The Life You Can Save is about donating and contributing to causes. And I found it very persuasive and I expected not to find it persuasive. And I was like, oh, I'm really not giving enough. And um, I think that this is one of the causes that is just, as I said, until we have green amendments, I think we need... 50, then another one, and that's just in this country. And uh, that is 50 states and a federal. But until we have that, we're not done. I'm not saying that's the goal, the end goal, because then that's just a starting point for, for more. But to me, this is – I do, would you agree with me that – am I saying this in a way that makes sense? Without Green Amendments, we don't – we haven't – how do I – it's we're not done yet. It's we can't. It, it's just we. It's like. Um... Well, you know how I think about. First off, let me thank you for your donation. I really appreciate that because the truth is, the Green Amendment movement is really at, at this point. It's a it is a powerful big movement in that we have so much action in so many states, and I have a joy the joy of working with so many leaders and communities. Um, but the opposition to the Green Amendment 
is building. You know, the oil and gas industry is trying to invest in their opposition and mischaracterizing and misrepresenting the Green Amendment movement and speaking in, you know, against it, um, including against the environmental justice values that it brings. And so our our need for resources is growing so we can meet the growing demand of the communities that want to advance this powerful pathway for protection. And also our needs are growing because we have to be able to push back on the misrepresentations of the opposition. And we are literally at Green Amendments for the Generations. We are a very small team that just gets, you know, squeezes tremendous value out of every dollar that people contribute. But we do have growing needs. So your contribution is so valuable and valued and appreciated. And your call for contributions from other people is so just, you know, it, it doesn't take it doesn't take much. $5, $10, $13, $100. You know, we all have different abilities, but if you have the ability to contribute any amount, it joins, you know, with the contributions of others from across the nation and is going to allow us to make a difference and be able to provide in a better way the resources our frontline communities need to advance this movement, right? So it's not dollars that go in it's dollars that get put to great use and value. So, so I just really want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you for um, that contribution. And then well, you're welcome. I'm, I'm, I was happy to do it. Talking about some, you were talking about something else that I was going to respond to afterwards. Do you remember what that was? Um, I forget, but I'm going to call for more contributions because if people out there are like, well, I don't have the money. Here's an idea. Your next vacation, when you might go flying somewhere, a lot of that money's going to, extract more fossil fuels in the future and burn them. And if you were instead to go camping nearby you, you would both appreciate nearby nature, something that I hope you this would help protect. You'd save a lot of money that would have gone to extracting and combusting and polluting. And instead, you'll get more nature nearer to you and you'll have extra money to lie around that you can give to uh, for the generations.org. Is it .org? .org. .org. Yeah, we're a nonprofit. We're a nonprofit. And the only, you know, all our support comes from donations or grants from foundations. That's it. I don't, you know, I don't get money from big business. We are a 1% for the planet partner. So there are some, um, you know, some 1% for the planet partner businesses that are focused on environmental protection that could contribute to us at this point, the one that has is Colton King, which is a really cool company that creates hair care and body care products, but does it in a way that is so protective of the environment. Um, and so they they made a lovely contribution. So, you know, I want to be clear, right? They're a business and we did accept their contribution. But other than business like Colton King, <laughs> they're not going to be donating to me. One, they don't want to. And two, I won't accept their donations because, you know, I'm in it to protect the environment. I'm not in it to help bad businesses greenwash. Um, so I want to make that want to make that point. But I really, you were saying something so important and I really- yeah, It might have been something about- um... People with lungs, people with beating hearts, people who were fed once through a placenta. No. Which I haven't said that one before. That was a while ago. You said that one a while ago. All right. Yeah, well, I was trying to see if that, if that uh, reminded you. Yeah, you were saying- Or if, if it's not finished yet, if it's- if um, I feel like it's essential. It's not- oh, It doesn't finish it. the job. Yes. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. You can finish the thought. 
Well, it's, I feel like an amendment is just, it's, you know, I keep coming back to Abraham Lincoln and the 13th Amendment, and it was the king's solution, he called it. But, it, I mean, without an amendment, judicial interpretations can go one way or another. I mean, Dred Scott in his time was saying that African-Americans didn't have citizenship. I mean, it was just crazy. And state legislation, federal, I mean, federal, state, and local laws can go in different directions. And even the Emancipation Proclamation, an executive order in a time of war, it could have happened that the Civil War could have ended without the if, if the 13th Amendment hadn't passed. It could have happened that even if all the slaves are free, which without enforcement, the Emancipation Proclamation couldn't, it had to be enforced as well. If the Civil War could have ended without a 13th Amendment, and it simply would have had all the slaves freed, but then they could have re-enslaved people, and slavery could have restarted. And that's why, I mean, there's a great scene in the movie, Lincoln, the, uh, the one with Daniel Day-Lewis, where he explains this. Although not as fully as if you read his stuff, but it, without an amendment, it's not really done. It's not, we haven't really, if the constitution is what constitutes a state or a nation, if it's not in the constitution, what have we, what do we really say about ourselves? Cause I don't think of the, I used to think of it as like passing a law and you, you corrected me last time. I was like something about a law and he's like, it's not a law. And it's not a law. It's not more legislation. If anything, it seems to me less, it will make a lot of would-be less legislation not necessary. In the same way that we don't have like a lot of legislation on slavery these days because we have a constitution on it, uh, an amendment on it. Yeah. And it like it's, it's a solution that anything else just doesn't really address what constitutes a state or a nation, something like that. So I agree with everything that you said. And the only thing that I would add was, you, you know, you were talking about we aren't done or we won't be done or we can't be done until we get this. And another way to also think about that is when it comes to environmental protection, we cannot succeed without a constitutional green amendment in every state across our nation and at the federal level, because the current laws are written in a way that will prevent us from succeeding when it comes to fully and fairly addressing environmental protection for all communities and all generations. It will be impossible to accomplish our environmental protection needs and goals through a purely political legislative process where legislation is created through politicking and deal-making and negotiating, where ultimately the lowest common denominator that will um, successfully secure enough votes is what ends up being passed. And if the legislation proves too strong, that it can just as easily be rolled back the following year. And it's a, you know, a political process where industry and people with money get greater access than real people with real lives and real life experiences to bring to the table. So we cannot succeed in properly, fairly, fully protecting our environment through this purely political legislative process that is so fundamentally flawed in so many ways. We have to have constitutional guidance, a constitutional entitlement 
that oversees and overarches all of it and ensures that political, legislative, regulatory, and enforcement process is all undertaken through the lens of ensuring the constitutional entitlements of the people to a clean, safe, and healthy environment and allows we, the people, the opportunity to enforce that entitlement when our government officials fundamentally fail us and choose to ignore or undermine our environmental rights. That's the only thing I would add to the beautiful, you know, powerful vision that you had been putting forth. Yeah, it's so tempting in today's age where things keep, they keep seeing more and more and more pollution, more degradation. It's so easy to think, well, this is just pie in the sky. It's not really practical. And yet it's supremely practical and it's, it's really, it's not pie in the sky. And also the more I, and the more I learned about the 13th passing, it was like unbelievable that it passed. And yet no one, I, I doubt there's a politician who will ever run on repealing that one. And what could you imagine if like, if we didn't have a right to uh, protection from search and seizure and imagine that was just something that got whittled away all the time. It's just the government we don't, would be everywhere in our business and it's, it's, it already is enough already. And this is such a, it makes so much sense and it's not pie in the sky. It just, it's maybe a bit difficult to think about, but not as difficult as other amendments were before they passed. Well, that's it. That, that is again, one of the beautiful things about the green amendment pathway is for real people, it's actually not difficult to conceive of, right? People know. I need and I want clean and healthy water and air. I want my kids to be able to go out and enjoy the beauty of nature and experience it, right? Everybody wants that for their, for themselves, for their family, for their friends, for their children, for their pets, right? Think about all the money that gets spent on people going on holiday, right? So often, right? See, think about all the television ads for these big fossil fuel burning cars. Where are those big fossil fuel burning cars going in those commercials? To the top of a beautiful mountain, to look out over a beautiful vista. Even the marketers get it, right? Everybody gets it, is that nature is so essential to our lives in so many ways, and we all want the benefits and the values of it. And so people don't need to understand the law the way I understand the law or be able to explain uh, the 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 legal cases where a green amendment made the fundamental difference and really protected people's lives and government authority and businesses in critical ways. They just need to look into their hearts, right? And speak their own personal truth, which is they want and need clean water and clean air. They're entitled to it. And if they want it, they need it. And they're entitled to it as a person here on this earth belongs in the Bill of Rights section of the Constitution, period, full stop. I think that might be a good place to wrap up. Great. I'll take that. <laughs> I mean, definitely, uh, I'm going to repeat. I just gave, and I recommend others do too. And if you want to figure out where the money is going to come from, spend a little less on combusting and extracting and, and divert that money to this. And you'll be happier in both ways. And it'll give you double. Exactly. Or when you go just even more simply, right? Think about that cup of coffee that you buy each day or that bottle of soda that you get. Just maybe think once a week, okay, I'm going to buy a cup of coffee for myself 
or a bottle of soda for myself. And then I'm going to take an equal amount of money and I'm going to set it aside to donate it to Green Amendments for the generations. Um, you know, and do that, like I said, once a week. Those those dollars add up. A dollar a week for 52 weeks, that's $52. That's a really great contribution that can help us make a big difference at the Green Amendment movement. So, Yeah, or even don't buy the soda at all. And then you get an even better benefit. But if you buy the soda, buy it in a tin can, not a plastic bottle, you know, because the tin can is truly recyclable. The plastic bottle is just more dirty fossil fuels that doesn't end up getting recycled. But anyway, but the point is that, right? It's just, you know, contributions, large and small, simple modifications in our lives, just matching, you know, making a contribution that matches something else that we do in our daily lives, even if it seems small in that moment, when you add it up over time or you add it up with the contributions of others, it really makes a big and powerful difference. And again, all this money is going to help real people who are working hard so that we all can have the right to a clean, safe and healthy environment. So the contribution makes a difference. And Josh, I appreciate so much your contribution um, that was so kind of you. And for anybody else who wants to donate, as you said, for the generations.org, there's a donate button and any amount large or small makes a difference. Maya Van Rossum, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.